Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, Chinese markets are open for trading once again. Shanghai, which hadn't traded since the holidays began on January 23rd, uh, tumbled 7.7%, the most since 2015. Uh, as the economy virtually is shut down because of the coronavirus. To give us a sense of kind of how to navigate uh, those waters, we welcome Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer for Crane Shares. He's based in New York City. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. What do you tell clients here as it relates to China, to Asia, in terms of uh, allocating capital there? We saw, again, a, vi- a violent uh, turndown in the Asian markets uh, today. Certainly for long-term investors, we believe, obviously, the coronavirus is having a very tragic toll from a human on, on you know, claiming lives. Uh, it's going to have a economic impact um, that could be in the, you know, over the next quarter or so. But, but we believe it, it is an opportunity, um, that for long-term investors, there is an opportunity today. I think they need to be a little careful in where they allocate those investments. But again, I think it is an opportunity for those long-run investors. All right. So it's an opportunity for long-run investors. Is this a bet on central bank stimulus by the PBOC? No, I mean, I mean, certainly the you know, like as we saw during the trade war, uh, China policymakers are going to do whatever they can to support the economy. Increasingly, China's economy is a um, a consumer-driven economy. So I think as we saw last year around the trade war, we're going to see a lot of stimulus to help that that side of the economy uh, during this, this kind of economic shutdown due to the coronavirus. So, Brendan, we had some news today on that front. Chinese officials are hoping uh, that the U.S. will agree to some flexibility on pledges in their phase one trade deal. Does that suggest to you that the virus may be worse than maybe currently being discussed by the government? I, I think, you know, certainly um, the the virus, I mean, I mean, people are scared. I mean, from talking to brokers and, and even colleagues in both China and Hong Kong, people are, are very scared. Um, and, and so there, there, there is going to be an impact. You're just going to limit, you know, say, you know, we saw it, you know, leading up to the Chinese New Year around tourism, you know, that big big sites or even movie theaters, you know, if it's Disneyland and, and Shanghai, you know, people don't want to congregate in big groups. And, and that, that is going to have a downstream effect because of the China's role in, in, in the global uh, supply chain. Brendan, I asked this question of Damien Sassauer earlier. There is suspicion that the uh, that the government of China basically encouraged national investors, uh, particularly those that are beholden to their wishes, um, to go in and buy stocks to perhaps stave some of the declines that we saw in the initial day of trading after reopening uh, in the wake of a closure due to the coronavirus. Is that true? How much state-sponsored encouraged buying was there? It's difficult to know. You know, you know the, the the Chinese regulator takes almost a paternalistic role in the mainland market due to the high participation rate from individual investors. Um, I do think there was activity uh, from the quote unquote national team. These are you know big social security pension plans. The end reality is when the last time we saw the national field uh, basically come come into the market was in the summer of 2015, when, when everything, everyone was selling. 
they bought. And that ended up being a very profitable trade. And, and I think, you know, I don't know, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow or in a week, but in the, in, it could be in the next month or the next quarter. I think those purchases done today and we'll probably see it again tomorrow, I think those are very profitable trades. This is, you know, buy low, sell high. So, Brendan, what, you know, what do you think the impact of the coronavirus will be on GDP for China this year and maybe even in, in, into next? How does this how do you think this will play out? So Hebei Providence plays a very minor role, uh, but but China is, is taking a very very serious approach. So so it, it it is going to affect it. You know, the sell side analysts are going to start dialing down expectations. It's it's even hard for them because we don't know when the coronavirus will take its when things will start to peter out. You know, you know the markets tended to come back during SARS. Uh, once, once the number of people infected stopped, um, and we're not there yet. So, so it, it's hard to know. You know, I think things stay in a lockdown mode until we see the virus contained, and, and as that becomes days, become potentially weeks, the feasibility of that being months, it, it's going to have an economic impact without question. Brendan, does it worry you at all that we're seeing uh, the yuan lose value versus the dollar now exceeding seven yuan per dollar? No, not not. I mean, you know, the, the yuan, you know, post trade deal came down from six twenty down into the six eighty. So, um, you know, I, I think you know certainly to me, I personally believe uh, interest rate differentials as well as economic conditions determine FX rates. Uh, you know, certainly Chinese bond market, what a rally that had overnight. I mean, massive, massive. As much as equities were down, huge rally in, in the onshore bond market. And then, then combine that with we're going to have a, a weakening in the short run in China's economy, and that explains a weaker yuan. Thank you so much for being with us. Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer of Crane Shares in New York. Well, there is increasing focus on Amazon.com as the dominant commerce uh, site. And there's a question about their crackdown or lack thereof on counterfeit items. Joining us now is Rania Sedholm, managing partner at Sedholm Law Group uh, in our interactive broker studios. Rania, let's just talk first about why you decided to look at this in particular. How big of a problem is it for counterfeit goods to be sold on the Amazon.com platform? First of all, thank you for having me here. I'm looking at it because it's an endemic issue on Amazon.com, and it's sometimes it's quite subtle because the the dollar amount that you're paying for this counterfeit merchandise is similar by maybe five percent to what you would pay for the genuine merchandise. Other times, it's not so subtle. But either way, most people are being duped. So, is this all products on online marketplaces, or is it primarily luxury, the high-priced luxury items? What kind of products? are typically susceptible to counterfeiting. Well, I'm, I'm very sorry to have to announce this on the radio, but it's all products <laughs> okay. at all price points, from toothpaste to Hermes items. What's Amazon.com's role in policing this? Because ultimately, is it their responsibility? Is it the perpetrator's responsibility on the other side? I think that's a great Great question. If you buy something that ends up being counterfeit from Saks Fifth Avenue or CVS, you can go back into that store and return it and have a conversation with someone who may be able to assess the product um, when you return it and give you a refund. Here, 
no one is really there to help you and some sellers do not allow you to return items yeah but in fairness amazon.com is not trying to be a curator of retail items they're trying to be or they aspire the sense that i get is they aspire to be uh an online marketplace for many different retailers and sort of a, a common uh a common area so does that change their role kind of does it make it a not a good analogy necessarily to say Saks Fifth Avenue no I don't think it really changes my position okay. because if you're in a mall we have a mall right we have a mall in Hudson Yards we have a mall in you know Manhattan Mall Those, we have them in New Jersey too we have them in <laughs> great and New Jersey too there are malls everywhere but by analogy when you want to rent space to sell your merchandise there's some kind of vetting process. Provide me with your P&L. Let me see if you're incorporated. Someone is caring about who that merchant is. Online, it's very anonymous. I have no idea who you are. Sometimes I can't tell where things are being shipped from, where they're being manufactured. And Amazon is extremely convenient. You just sit or stand, <laughs> press a button, and voila, your item is here within a day, sometimes even less. Okay, so I'm a consumer. I realize that the package that was just delivered to me is a counterfeit. What are my legal rights? Amazon does have a program that allows you to return merchandise, but sometimes those refunds don't come for a very long time. Sometimes people get lazy. I mean, if you're buying lipstick for $12, you may not you know, make an attempt to return it. You'll say, oh, it's not worth it. And that happens all the time. So Amazon, though, they will, if you say it's a counterfeit and they agree with you, they will refund your money, right? I mean, they, it's not like Amazon's out there to, to screw their users, are they? I mean, I can't speak for Jeff Bezos. However, I can tell you that their algorithm that uses Amazon's choice does lead consumers to buy counterfeit goods. Try it at home today. Type in, I don't know, uh, luxury iPhone case and see what pops up. There's an, a sort of a bigger question underlying a lot of what you're saying, which is, what is the role of Amazon.com and are they absconding it in terms of being responsible stewards of the modern marketplace? And this has been an issue with respect to how they do their own uh, product placement versus others, their algorithm that way. It's been an issue in terms of how they have pushed some competitors out of the market. How does this piece fit into that larger debate? I think it's all part and parcel uh, the same. Amazon is trying to maximize its profits. No one can blame them for that. That's the purpose of a for-profit company. However, there are many ways you can do so. And one way is educating the consumer. There is consumer loyalty. People may think it's disappeared, but it's there. Amazon is a great you know, example of that. I want to go shopping. I think of Amazon, consumer loyalty. Get more of it educate your consumers, tell them, this is the usual MSRP of your item. So if you're paying, we'll just go back to you know cosmetics. If you know that that Armani lipstick is supposed to be $38, don't buy it for $20 here, it may not be real. If you want to buy it, then you may, but you should at least know what you're getting into when you're purchasing the product. Also tell us, has this color been discontinued? Perhaps that's why it's on sale. I don't know if it would dip right. to 20. It might actually go up to 45. <laughs> However, educate consumers. Right. Not everybody knows how much 
every single item is supposed to cost. Rania Sethome, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts there. Rania is a managing partner, Sethome Law Group, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, giving us some some thoughts about buying online. It's not just Amazon.com, buying online in general. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Noah Feldman. Noah is a professor of law at Harvard University and also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist based in Boston. Noah, thanks so much for joining us. You know, it looks like, again, as Lisa was suggesting earlier, that this thing, uh, this impeachment trial is pretty much done and dusted here. Let's take the step back and take a 30,000-foot view. What do you think are some of the bigger picture takeaways from this whole process? There's a kind of glass half full, glass half empty set of ways of looking at it. You know, the glass half full side is that the president engaged in conduct that certainly the majority of Democrats in the House of Representatives thought rose to the level of impeachment, and they did what they were supposed to do. They exercised their constitutional authority. They impeached him. So that's the, the good news. The system worked in that, in that way. The glass half full side, though, is a little bit outweighed at the moment by the glass half empty perception which is that many Republicans in the Senate seem to be taking the view that even if Trump did these things, it nevertheless doesn't count as impeachable under the Constitution. And, you know, it's hard to say if they really believe that or if they're just saying that to cover up their desire to, you know, not to do anything politically bad to Trump. But either way, it's not a great thing for them to be saying because it implies that this kind of conduct, you know, cheating in an election is just okay under our constitutional system. And that's not going to bode well for the future. Professor Feldman, uh, given your work at Harvard when you were clerking for uh, Supreme Court Justice David Souter and beyond, how much of a precedent does this set for future proceedings in terms of what is, or in this case, is not a truly impeachable offense? There's two kinds of precedent when you talk about impeachment. You know, there's not a court that can be bound by an earlier decision. So when we talk about precedent, we're talking about two things. One, we're talking about the kinds of legal arguments that will be made in any future impeachment proceeding. And for sure, if Trump is cleared, whoever's defending a president in future impeachment proceedings will say, look, the Trump impeachment stands for the idea that you can't impeach someone unless there's some kind of an actual statutory crime. And then other people will be able to say, well, says you, but that's not really what happened. The other kind of precedent is, will any future House of Representatives even bother to impeach a president who's done something that really breaks the constitutional system but doesn't count as a statutory crime. That's the kind of real-world political calculus type of precedent. And there it's, you know, it's too soon to say, but I certainly think that any future House of Representatives is going to be very, very, very cautious about entering into an impeachment under those conditions, unless they're prepared to lose, which I suppose the Democrats were in this case. So were you surprised at all that uh, the Republicans stood so uniformly behind the president, or was this, like many people were concerned, kind of preordained? I'm sorry to say that I'm not surprised by it. Um, That said, I am surprised to see senators saying that this conduct just doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. That seems to me to be one of the more doubtful things that they're saying. I actually expected them to say, well, on the evidence you know, maybe we just can't prove this. And anyway, the president denies it. I expected a more fact-based defense, even, even again, even if it was hypocritical, that just sounded more plausible to me than saying, well, it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. And it also, you know, the saying that it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment has a much worse effect 
in the long run because it implies that they think this kind of conduct is fine. Can you grade Justice Roberts's performance in this? I think he did excellently. Um, you know, his predecessor, Chief Justice Rehnquist, um, who actually, interestingly, Roberts also was a law clerk for him many years ago, famously said after the Clinton impeachment trial, I did nothing in particular and I did it very well. And I think that's what Roberts was aiming for. And I would give him an A for doing nothing in particular and doing it very well. So for <laughs> very well. Um, so the Constitution, as it relates to impeachment, has that been kind of neutered to some extent? I would say yes. You know, I mean, I think if the vote goes the way we expect it to, that really weakens the idea that that impeachment is there to help protect us against a president who does things to cheat in an election that don't necessarily count as statutory crimes. And I would expect that future presidents are likely to be willing to take that risk. I mean, I hope it's not that way. I hope future presidents say, well, you know, look, I mean, Donald Trump got impeached and that goes on his historical record and it looked bad. And a lot of that, to be blunt, is going to depend on what happens in the next election. If Trump is reelected, people, I think, will feel very few qualms in the future about doing what he did. If he's not reelected, there might be some second thoughts. Professor Feldman, thank you so much for being with us. Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Uh, tons of experience both in the legal and beyond worlds, uh, having clerked for Justice Souter, joining us from Boston, Massachusetts. Well, coming into 2019, if you can rewind all the way back to January 2019, it was going to be the year of the big unicorn IPO, Lyft, Uber, WeWork. It didn't quite turn out that successfully for public equity investors. You get a sense of kind of what we should be learning from some of those lessons. We welcome Vincent Deluar. He is a global macro strategist for INTL FC Stone, uh, based in San Francisco, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Vincent, thanks so much for joining us. Again, as we think back, put our rearview mirror, take a look at the rearview mirror. We see Uber, we see Lyft, we see Smile Direct. A lot of these companies raised a lot of money at a certain valuation. They come to the public markets, they don't get that valuation. What are some of the takeaways that, that, that you've seen in your work? Well, I mean, it's almost the mirror opposite of what happened in, in 2000 when you know you had these exuberant public markets. Today, it seems to me that the, the exuberance is on the private markets and the, the public markets are bringing some form of discipline. I mean, I, I was reading about Casper trying to IPO and a lot of these companies cannot get the valuations that they got in, in private markets. And the effect that this has had is that um, there's no exit. Um, so now you, you have this backlog of unicorns that are uh, burning cash at a very high rates and the big exit, whether it's, you know, a big... Uh, uh, soft bank uh, cash infusion or a big IPO is, is no longer going to happen. So you have this idea that actually the bust of these unicorns, the myth of the unicorns, is going to be reflationary. Can you explain the connection there, especially on a day when I should just know yes. we just got a headline <laughs> that WTI prices fell below $50 a barrel uh, for the first time in uh, more than a year. So yeah. we have that kind of pressure as well. Right. Um, so I, I think first we need to understand how it was deflationary in, in the first place. Um, I mean, following the OA crisis, you had this, uh, 2008 was a genuinely deflationary shock. 
uh, yield curves flatten, uh, rates went negative all over the world. And, and what it did is that it, it directed a flood of money into venture capital and private equity, which suddenly became seen as a silver bullet that would allow endowment and institutions to achieve their return targets. And it was a very small asset class with not that many great ideas, but the money got invested with a mandate to achieve growth at any cost. Kind of the Amazon model, right? Amazon never turned a profit in the first nine years of its existence. So the way most of these, com many of these companies did that was by by selling a dollar for 90 cents. Um, and a lot of the, uh, the consumer-oriented uh, unicorns were built on that model. Let me uh, achieve scale, and then I'll worry about profits later. So effectively, all these companies were subsidizing customers. Best example, of course, is WeWork, Lyft, Uber. And um, the more they grew, the more money they lost. Um, and as long as the money kept going in, the, the, the loop could keep going. But without this constant influx of money, I mean, you will have to raise prices. I don't know if you've taken an Uber lately, but you'll notice that the prices have gone up significantly from last year. And you've seen certainly a lot of, of, a lot of these unicorns come back and say, well, we'll be profitable by 2020, we'll be profitable 2021. Well, how are you going to achieve that by raising prices? So the reflation trade, which is one of the trades we certainly heard about when people, strategists were talking about 2020 opportunities, emerging markets, reflation trades, small caps. Uh, we're obviously, we're not seeing, as Lisa mentioned, you know, you've got oil, uh, WTI dipped below $50 a barrel just a few minutes ago, first time in a year. We've got an inverted yield curve. What do you think are the conditions that need to develop for that reflation trade to really start to develop? Well, I I think it was trying to happen between you know November, December. You had a good strength in copper prices. You saw value do well, emerging markets. There was all the trading hopes. I think we had this perfect setup for it. And then of course the coronavirus has thrown a big wrench into it. But again, obviously I'm not a. I can't really talk intelligently about the coronavirus. But maybe let's let's step back a little bit and think of what it means. I mean, either if it's really, I think if if it's Turns off, we'll go back to where we were before, where, you know, kind of global synchronized recovery, trade peace. And if it's bad, I mean, you end up basically, you know, shutting down the factory of the world. I mean, to me, down the line, that will be an inflationary event. Uh, and, and the last part I would say that people probably should, should think about is how is that going to change the policy response in China? I mean, part of the, the issue with the reflation trade was a lack of Chinese stimulus. Well, maybe that is in a weird way that would be the trigger for that. You know, there, there's a question, is it going to be reflationary in a positive sense where you end up with more growth that the Fed's been trying for and failing to get? Or is it going to be stagflationary with prices being raised at the time when higher bond prices might mean a collapse in the stock market, et cetera, et cetera, play out your worst case scenario? So which is it going to be more likely? Well, I think, I think at the beginning, the market would obviously welcome some inflation, especially in, in, in regions like Europe and Japan. But eventually, my, my, my thesis was a lot of the, uh, the things that we treated, we mistook. Um, uh, or there is no productivity improvement in that unicorn segment of the world. So that would be more actually inflationary, sorry, stagflationary than it would be a positive shock over the long term. One of the interesting things just coming out of Davos was the, I don't know, Lisa, who was the person that the boom bust cycle is over? Oh, Bob, Bob Prince. Yeah, Bob Prince. Water. I know you brought that up many times. It's interesting. Do you think that has value? Is, has the Fed taken that dynamic out of the marketplace, do you think? Again, as long as you don't have inflation, uh, the, the Bob Prince comment makes sense, right? I mean, if, if the Fed is, 
if central banks are freed from their price stability mandate, they can pursue other mandates like, you know, rising asset prices or the repo market that suddenly their hands become free to do anything, any, anything that they want. If you get inflation back, which is my case, then no, the boom bust cycle is not over. It's just been postponed. Vincent Delois, thank you so much for being with us, global macro strategist of INTLFC Stone, based in San Francisco, but joining us here in our interactive broker studios. We really appreciate you being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.